Well, Friday morning, I had an appointment that I was supposed to make, and suddenly the Lord started speaking to me this lesson. And so you'd think the Lord would use something that, you know, I've written up on, but this one's hot off the press. And in fact, I wasn't even sure about what the main points are going to be. So it's called the seven levels of lordship. All right. So we're going to start with that concept of what the lordship of Jesus Christ looks like on you. Now, the first point that I'm going to go to is I'm going to let Jesus explain lordship to us. And I'm going to pick us a fun scripture, and we're going to look in Matthew chapter 13. And this is where I come up with what it means to sell out to the Lord, to sell out everything you've got. But I want you to catch something so important in verse 11. And if you're like me, I like secrets. Like, you know what I catch you doing? We take someone back there to the banana room, and I can hear everybody gets real quiet to hear what's been said in there because everybody likes secrets. Everybody likes to know what's going on. Well, in verse 11 of Matthew, it says there are secrets to the kingdom of heaven. There are secrets to the kingdom of heaven. Had you ever thought about the gospel? You think, oh man, everybody has to have it. We got to push it on people. They need it. But actually, Jesus said on purpose, there are secrets. So tonight, we're going to go into that concept. It says, the knowledge about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. So he had an inner group, a special close group, and he told them the secrets of the kingdom. And so my question to you is, have you found the secret? Have you found the secret to the kingdom of heaven? Now, I'm going to give you a secret that is nowhere else. I never hear anyone else saying this. But literally, it's the secret to selling out to God. It's the Lordship. Everyone else that preaches it is going to preach it mean to you. Everyone else is going to make it hard. Everyone else is going to make you think, oh, I can't do that. That would take a saint. And this is not a gathering of particularly people that would be, most people would think of as saints. Amen, amen, right here. So I'm going to give you the secret to sell out. And it's in Matthew 13, 44 through 45. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Now again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and when he finds it, he sells everything to buy it. Now, that's what it's like when you find the good stuff, when you find the kingdom of heaven. So the concept of sellout, first of all, that we see here, it happens to you alone. Now, most of the time when we say the word alone, everybody goes, oh, I don't want to be alone. Please don't make me be alone, because you think alone means lonely. Not in this situation. Alone means great. You've got the treasure, (laughs) And so no one will steal it from you. Alone means you found the bargain. Alone means when you're shopping and you've got that good uh, uh, sale deal that you're pulling it out of everyone else's hands. Alone here is a good thing. It's this secret, this being alone here, it makes you rich. See what it says? And it means, let me give it to you in spiritual language. It means you personally find it out for yourself. It means that what we're going to talk about tonight, you got to find with your heart. you got to find this out yourself about the kingdom, or you will never be able to go down these levels. So the first thing to sell out, the very first point is, you'll find out that the kingdom of God is a better deal. And if you haven't found out yet that it's a better deal, you can't sell out. You won't sell out. Like, you shouldn't sell out until you realize that what you're selling out for is a better thing. So all these kids being pushed to serve God, you know how people push you. Oh, you got to serve God, you got to serve God. It's not a push. It's got to be a secret between you and God where you figured out that what I'm talking about tonight is the best deal you could ever make. So it's an assessment of value. It's, it's where you figure out, oh, this treasure is worth more than anything else in my life. Like, I couldn't live without this. So the first secret 
that you'll find about the kingdom of heaven that most people don't know because they feel like, oh, it's forced on me, is that you find the good deal about it. So all you bargain shoppers, all you guys who go to auctions, <laughs> all you people who are looking for something good, a good deal, the secret to the kingdom of God is God guarantees you it's a better deal. Now, the second thing is the thing I like the best. It says that when you find this good deal, you feel so guilty. You feel so bad. You feel like you have to go do it. Is that is the emotion? Is that the feelings that's in this verse for the kingdom? Oh, you just dread having to go. What's the emotion that it gives with the kingdom of heaven? Joy. But why does everyone see sellout as miserable, fearful, terrible? Let me tell you, you cannot have a sellout. You cannot have the lordship of Jesus in your life until it becomes joy to you. Because every other way is forced. Every other thing is, is you're feeling it's pushed upon you. So I wanted you to circle two key words. It's so little and so small, most people miss it here. First of all, it's a better deal. It's value. And secondly, it's with joy. And that's what I found that the Lord has shown me in my life is that serving the Lord is fun. Like, I don't have the approach of everyone else. It's with joy. And so that is what's hidden in Scripture. So here's the question. What value do you place on the kingdom of heaven? If not much, then the idea of selling out to God is completely new to you. If you don't put much value on it, like you haven't seen the value, then it's a new concept what we're talking about. But listen to the analogy that he uses here. The analogy is it's a static joy. Look at this. When you find buried treasure. Now they have a, uh, an old legend that where we have a little place down in San Saba along the river, they've buried gold down there. And believe me, my brother and I, we were always looking for that gold. And when you find treasure, what does it do to you? I mean, it's like winning the lotto. I mean, you can't take the smile off your face. You have found something that nobody else has found. And believe me, you're not going to tell anybody. You're going to hide it, and you're going to get that gold. Have you been reading about the treasure they found off a ship and how much gold they found just recently? It's a buried treasure. Don't let it escape you that what we're talking about tonight is buried treasure. It is something so fun and so ecstatic that it's the best-kept secret about the lordship of Christ. Now, this sets the tone for what we're going to talk about because if you don't see it in these terms, you're not ready for it. You're not ready to sell out because you don't see the good deal. You kind of are of the notion that if you do it, you'd be doing God a favor, <laughs> that God should be happy to have you. <laughs> you haven't found the benefit that it is to your life. So... I'm asking you, have you found the buried treasure of the kingdom? And this man believed that the return would be better than the investment. This man believes that what he's going to get back is going to be worth far more than what he's going to pay. Men, it is how you feel when you find that woman, you put a ring on her finger. You feel like the investment, my little investment, is better. The return is so much better than anything I'm going to pay out. You don't care where the comma is in the figure for that diamond. It is the sellout. So we're going to be looking at the seven levels of lordship. Now, of course, we know the scripture. If I was asking you, you know, how, what does it say? Where in the Bible does it say that you have to, how do you get saved? And Romans 10, 9 and 10 is one that a lot of people go to. And it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So we see the lordship of Jesus. Most of the time we would read Jesus is Savior. But this is talking about Jesus is Lord. And if you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I feel like that the lordship begins with acknowledgement. I'm going to just acknowledge Jesus. But inside your heart you acknowledge 
Jesus, you're my Lord. And it feels good to say that. If you've never said that, say it. Jesus, you're my Lord. Whisper it in your heart. It's where the beginning of lordship starts. It's with the acknowledgement. You know, he's Lord. So let's look at what step you're on. Which rung on the ladder you've gone up. Let's see where you are, because I'm going to go down seven. And I don't, I don't think that you're going to tell me I'm all seven of them. If you are, come meet me. I can't wait for this. So would you like to know what seven steps to lordship could be in your life? And then also I would like for you to do a little self-evaluation with Scripture and see where you are and how many of these steps you've taken. And if you've taken a piece of some of them. So the difference is between having made Jesus Savior because you believe, you believe he's the Son of God in your heart. You've confessed him. And where you've gone and you said, it is worth everything in my life to give it to him. So sellout and lordship is not just a one-time issue. Or at least that's not how it's been for me. Every time I've done a step, I think, this is it. I've completely sold out. <laughs> you feel like this is completely the sellout that the Bible's talking about. But I answered that question, why are there steps and levels? Why do you think, okay, I've done everything? Because at the point that you sell out, you tell yourself, well, to all that I know of God, I've sold out. Like everything I could possibly think that I could give him, I've given him. And everyone else may be looking at you going <laughs> with one half eye open, just like, oh, okay. Uh, you feel like you've sold out. All right. Another thing that it can do for you is being around people that are very sold out to the Lord. I want you to think, how many people do you know in your life that are truly, you would say, Jesus is Lord, that they're sold out to the Lord, that they have the Lordship? Like, you don't have to tell anybody. But I want to know how many solid people you think there are. It's kind of shocking sometimes when you realize there aren't that many. Where you would say, this person is completely sold out to the Lord. Because they feel very solid to you when you find those type people. And you probably have never really thought about it, but there are people in your life where you go, I would say this person is that. And then... Um, uh, you can look more into what that means. It, it has a pull on you. It has a draw to it when someone's sold out to the Lord. Uh, it's kind of like, what, what does she have that I don't have? You know, I remember Steph. If y'all have not met the famous Steph over here, she's contrary. I mean, she came into the kingdom this way. Uh, she was doing uh, Bible studies for the ladies at Santa Ana First Baptist, and she was watching the lady who was doing the presentation of the Bible, and the lady has so much energy and so excited about the Lord, and Steph was like, I don't know what that lady has that I don't have, but I'm telling you, God, I wouldn't go squat in a hut in Africa for you. <laughs> now, Steph said what we all think. Like, if you don't really think that sell out, you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm afraid if I sell out to God, he'll make me do, quote, this or that. So look at, uh, look at Steph and the emotions of it. The emotions Steph's having is Steph admired this woman because this lady had joy with her sellout. I mean, she saw her joy, so Steph admired her for that. But sometimes a person that's real sold out to God, if you're not ready to sell out, they make you nervous. Or they do that thing where it makes you want what they've got. So if you have fear with the very mention of the Lordship of Jesus, if, if right now you're quaking inside, then go back to point number one and know that the sellout comes because you're getting a better deal and it comes with joy. This is not something I'm going to push you into. In fact, Jesus might have been indicating this when he says, uh, count the cost and make sure you're ready. I'm inviting you into looking at something you've never, ever maybe experienced. So with sellout, you have this fear, this fear of surrender. Listen to this. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life, but I'm afraid God will send me overseas and make me be a missionary. Okay. I have this fear that if I make Jesus the Lord of my life, I know this is it. I'm afraid he won't let me marry. 
or he'll come back too soon. I won't get him married. Have you ever had that fear? Now watch this one. I'm afraid if I make Jesus the Lord of my life, he'll make me marry someone that's ugly. <laughs> we all have this thing of where we have these fears inside of us of thinking what that's going to look like. Like, surely he's going to do that to us. He's going to make me marry someone I feel sorry for that has never had a date in their life, and I have to do them a favor. And that's what you're looking at like you think that that's sellout. So, anyway, this is the walk of the Lordship. And I would tell you, get over your fear of God. Because with maturity, you will grow out of your childish fears. These are very young fears that we have. Because God is all-powerful, but God is good. I wouldn't even understand what laughter is if I didn't know the Lord. I wouldn't know what, what love is. I mean, you've got to realize you're dealing with the author. He came up with these ideas. You know he's good because he wouldn't make you eat food. Like, you have to eat food, but he makes it taste good. Like, it's interesting what he does. He puts pleasure around these things in life. You need to trust him that your sellout to God will be with pleasure. So the walk of lordship, if you don't have joy, you haven't found the treasure. So I may throw in my age here or there when I did some of these sellouts in order to help you see something. And the point that I'm making when you see my age when I did it is to let you see it's a journey. Like it didn't happen all at once. Like it was steps of faith for me. But you've got to begin by taking those lordship steps. Uh, so like the Lord, when I would know there was time for me to come and sell out on an issue, the Lord would start speaking it to me in my spirit. And he would tell me the next area he wanted me to surrender. Up until then, I thought I had. But he would just start nudging me. And until then, I didn't even know about that area. So you may be in the point of trying to discover your life purpose. And it may be just like overwhelming to you. Like, who am I? Who am I? I remember that feeling of, of thinking my freshman year, who am I? I remember my senior year at Howard Payne. Who am I and what am I going to do to earn money? Okay, so it can seem like a big, <laughs> confusing, frustrating subject. I mean, you sit there and you think ring by spring. If you don't marry someone by your senior year, how am I going to have money? I mean, girls, we, you have to think these things through. So it can be very confusing, very frustrating. So you want to move forward, but you're not sure how. You want to find your purpose, but you feel like you're walking around going nowhere, and you feel confused. But God doesn't feel confused. So you will be shocked to find out that what we're talking about today is what you have been looking for, and now I'm calling it the seven secrets in lordship. All right, number one is the joy in surrender. Did you know when you're really, really in love, surrender is not hard? It's when you're not in love that surrender is terrible. You know, it's like with your sibling. Surrender to me. <laughs> you know, they got your arm caught behind your back pulling it. Surrender. Uncle. You know, all the different things my brother would make me repeat. You're thinking of God as twisting your arm, trying to trick you into selling out to him so you can be beggarly poverty in some country. Y'all, I have seen the masses of poverty. I've been with the poor I've been right across the border where families live in a trash dump in Mexico. Whole families, they scurry through the trash. In Mexico, we helped uh, buy Christian films for a church that they've made in the brothel. And the cartel owns the entire brothel. And we were putting our, our book all the way through. So you can see these horrible places in the world that are without hope. And so as you're thinking about what does surrender mean, what does that mean that's going to happen to me? Well, we would say boss, that you make Jesus boss. But you know what? That's a little too uh, American for me. I would say master. That's more Middle Eastern. The concept of he's master to me. So the first stage to sell out surrender, how I said it to the Lord was, I want all that you have. I want 
everything you have. It's the most dangerous prayer you can pray. And then I told the Lord, and I'll give you all that I have. Guess who got the better deal? So I'm going to dare you, if you want a one-sentence prayer to pray, say, God, I want everything you got. I always say, people that pray that, that's why they're in this Bible study. God helps you find honorary people, and you just made connections because it's about that. So at age 12, I got saved, and I was a selfish little hard-hearted creature. And at 13, I decided that it was time for me to sell out to God. And I told him, okay, God, I want to live for you in an extreme way. And I've told you what's happened to me at that point was that the Lord showed me two paths in life. And he showed me one with all my friends going down it. And he showed me a path that had nobody on it. And he told me, choose. And I don't know why I thought I had bargaining power with the Almighty. But at age 13, when the Lord told me, choose what path, I told him, I'll choose that path that no one's on. If you'll make me a promise, God, that my life will never be boring. Isn't that funny that at 13, that is the most important thing in your life. I don't want to be bored. But did you know I've been in these boring adult places, you know, where adults are all doing their stuff. And did you know they're bored too? And they need to hear this. It's what gets adults in trouble is they're bored. Your parents may be bored. That may be why they're getting in trouble. I volunteer at prisons. They're bored. That's why most of them are in there. It's boredom. And so God made me a deal that if I'd sell out to him, he would never, ever let my life be boring. The people that know me say amen if my life's not boring. <laughs> I mean, I get to deal with fun people. I mean, all kinds of good things. I mean, it's just never boring. Kaylee's testimony was not boring. <laughs> These people that come to me. All right, what's happened in life? Surrender means you quit compartmentalizing Jesus. And you tell the Lord, I'm handing over my last key to one of the rooms in my heart. Have your way with me, Lord. And you don't wince when you say it like, I wonder what he's going to do to me. It's not sell it yet. If you're, except that it's a little bit fun. You feel a little bit of adrenaline pumping through you. I wonder what he will ask of me. I wonder what he'll say no to me. I mean, you're wincing a little bit. You've got to find out for yourself. I can't help you find your buried treasure. You and God have got to make a deal. You know, I felt like God put his hand down out of heaven, and he shook with me on that deal. I mean, I could feel the pleasure of God. It was like he was smiling because he was like, she's so young she hadn't read the small print. And he has ramped my life up. So, surrender. Surrender means that you'll be very productive. You know, in Matthew 13, it says some will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100. That means your life will have good results to it. Some 30%, a little less than half of the time. Some 60, a little more than half of the time. Some 100. That's the return on the sellout. You know, another thing that you have to put is your fears on the altar. I'm going to give you a verse, Exodus 29, 37. It says, anything that touches the altar will become holy. You know, I can look out at the campus, and you know what I see when I'm looking at the campus? Altars. Places that I got on my knees late at night when no one knew it, and I gave something to God. Places at your house. Those are altars, and anything you let touch the altar becomes holy. And some of you have real fears in your life. Sometimes fear is an indicator that something's not right. I know that I remember the Lord was saying to me, I want you to give me your parents. And at my young age, I told the Lord, I'm not going to give you my parents. If I give you my parents, you'll kill them. <laughs> that was my best theology. And the Lord just kept saying to me over and over, give me your parents, give me your parents. And I noticed that the Lord's a lot like my mother. He just keeps repeating himself. You know, I don't know why mothers think if they say it enough, you'll finally go, oh, yes, I'll do it like a zombie, and you walk towards them. And the Lord was wearing me out. I, I know it felt like 45 minutes, give me your parents, give me your parents, give me your parents. And finally, I just threw my parents away. At that point, you know, God had just 
worn me out and I knew it was never going to stop and I fall out in my front yard. I'm a little kid and I'm laying in the grass and I say, okay, God, I give you, I give you my parents. And I thought, oh, I gave them over. I wonder how he's going to kill them. <laughs> it's going to happen any day now. And the moment I said to the Lord, I give you my parents, he whispered in my ear and he said, now they're safe. And I learned a principle I did not know, that when we white-knuckle grip something, oftentimes we lose it. What we hold on so tight, and I realized that in releasing them, that was where the safety had been. That was the first time, like the theology lesson, where the Lord began speaking to me as a young child. There's some things you need to put on the altar, and it's the things you're most afraid about. If you're afraid of failing, if you're afraid of loss, there's no one that's free from fear. For every fear, you need to have an altar. And that's where you go. You know, the surrender, the sellout. You know you might be a crooked person. I think of old Zacchaeus. He was crooked. He had cheated everybody. Because with Jesus, he was smart. Some of you may be thinking, I've stole something before. I've done this. I've done that. I've, and you're thinking, my dad, when he got saved, he went down to this drugstore down here. He was 30, and he gave the man money, and he said, I stole a pair of headphones from you when I was a kid. And the guy goes, you're kidding. This has been, what, two decades? <laughs> and he paid him money. I had one guy, every time we'd go out to eat, he and his girlfriend, we were all like hired paying kids. And everywhere he'd get up and he'd go to the cash register, and I'd go, what'd you do here? I walked on the cheese sticks. Oh, okay. Every restaurant in town, he had stolen something. <laughs> he was Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus was smart because he beat the Lord to the punch. Before the Lord told him, sell everything you have, he said, Lord, I'll give you half. And if I defrauded anyone, I'll give you up to half, four times what I took from them. Some of you are that crooked little character. And you're honoring. You need to talk to God before he talks to you about it. Honestly, I'm not kidding you. The Lord works a lot like a fun relationship. Tell him first your sins. And tell him, I want to make restitution. And it goes down better than the rich young ruler who, who <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lost everything. This guy was a little bit of a chump. And listen to what God says. Can you believe it? Zacchaeus says to God, I'll give you, I'll give you up to four times as much anybody I cheated. And Jesus says, Behold, salvation has come to your house. I didn't know that making restitution and paying back walked on cheese sticks could get you salvation to your house. Luke 19, read it. Behold, salvation has come to you. Because it's sellout. It's where you're taking the thing that you're most going to wreck your walk with God and makes you feel like a hypocrite and makes you feel like you're no good. You give it to God. And you tell God it's yours. You alter it. So Jesus made this important question. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do anything I tell you to do? Yeah, sell out. Number two, we spent some time with this a couple of weeks ago on Every calling has restraints to it. So there's restraints to your calling. Like, what is your calling? What does your calling look like? What has God made you to do? There's restraints to power. This sounds like a Lionel Spider-Man with great power. <laughs> restraints. It's a unique aspect to your calling. And... The tree in the Garden of Eden, I'd never thought of it as God's given you thousands of trees and all kinds of fruit and all these good things to eat. And he's looked down and he said, it's not good that man live alone. And here I'll give you a wife. And he goes, oh, woman. And, you know, all these good things that he just gave Adam. But he put one thing in the garden so he could tell him no. Everybody has to have something in their life that God says no and you obey it because if not you're really not obedient I'd never thought about the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was that tree of restraint it's that thing in your life where God has a handle on you write down Psalm 32 8 through 9 he says I really want it to be like love between us so that I can say no 
But he says, and not be like the horse and the mule who has to take a bridle and put a bit in their mouth in order to make them go the way that I want them to. So sometimes my heart says to God, God, take the bridle off of me. Take the reins off. Take the saddle off. I'll let you tell me which way to go without a bridle. You don't have to yank on my mouth. I'll turn just by the pressure of your hand. God, I want to give that to you with my heart. See, if you give it to God ahead of time, it makes all the difference. You're not like a a dumb horse or a dumb donkey. I'm not going to speak King James. That You're not like that where it takes something like a whip to make you behave. The role of resist and the purpose in it. You know, it's like having maturity. No one likes a kid that the parents can't tell it no. Have you ever seen one of those that rule the house? The parent had never figured out they need a restraint on the kid. They need to be able to say no and protect the child's life. That's how it is with you. This is obedience in your life without being legalistic. Let me say it to you. I will not be giving you a set of rules. You're going to have to find it with your heart. These things that I'm telling you come out of being madly in love. You can't understand God apart from it. Out of love and gratefulness. God has to be able to tell us no. So a restraint on your feelings, a restraint on our temper. Listen to this, a restraint on our mouth. Remember, James, this slippery thing, put your finger in your mouth and pull that slippery thing in your mouth. It said that's what keeps you from being mature. That thing right there, we can't control it. That thing called our tongue. You know, the restraint on your time. Oh, girls, this one's terrible. The restraint on your spending. (laughs) We've got to ask the question, the serious question that must be answered now. Is your pocketbook saved? Is your mouth saved? These are lordship questions. We've got to be practical. I remember when the Lord gave me Jeremiah 15, 15. And with my calling, I saw the restraint. That my life was going to be different than everyone else's. And hallelujah, now they're all coming to me. (laughs) Someone has no restraint on their gifts that they have. Gifts are given by God. God may give you a powerful gift on your life. How about if he gave you prophecy? But you had no restraint on the gift. No restraint for power. And the gift is to be used for the purposes of God. So let's just say they call you bald head. Hey, you bald head. And you use your power to get them smashed. That's actually in the Bible. The guy was like, you call me bald head? You little teenage kids? The lions came out of the woods and ate you. Restraint on power. You remember when Jesus said, well, uh, that was the wrong spirit that Elijah used out of fear, where he kept letting them, all 50 of them, be burned up with fire. Your gifts need to be with restraint. You know how people do it in this generation? They do it because it it makes them point to them. Like, remember Gehazi? He said, "Uh, my master does want the money. Go ahead and pay up for the miracle. The second Kings 5. You know, let me put it in more practical terms. Sometimes we've had a whole set of musicians up here, and they worship the Lord. And you can tell those that were taught to do it for entertainment and those that are really worshiping the Lord. And there's a difference between a performer and a worshiper. It has to be restraint. Even if you're the most musical, gifted person in the world, it has to come where it's not soulish. Oh, another one, especially in the South. We've made an art form out of this one. Control. (laughs) You cannot operate as a controller. You cannot operate in control and lordship. If you have control going on in your life, manipulation, you won't have lordship because you're taking care of yourself. Control has to be leached out of your life. You know, I'm going to say this humbly to you, but let me teach you some things, some principles from the Word of God. Because if I don't teach you, you'll walk out this door, and the world will teach you. Society will teach you, and it won't be kind to you. 
you know, there are deterrents and restraints out there. There's how society treats you. There's law enforcement. There's ways that things happen to us if we get out into the land where we have no personal restraints. It is best to learn them from the word so that the world doesn't teach us. And then a lot of people, they'll reject one of the restraints or just a restraint and they'll put spiritual clothing around it. Have you ever seen anyone, they justify what they do and they put a lot of scriptures around it. And you're like, I know there's something wrong with that, but I can't exactly tell why. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, number three, Lordship, is the joy of, and you're going to shoot me for this one, but it's in there. It's the joy of persecution. I remember sitting over at First Baptist Church, and I remember the bench I was sitting on and where I was sitting, and they read the verse, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Second Timothy 3.12, and I go, I'm not suffering any persecution. And it said, oh, and I was like, no, I'm not. Well, it's made up for it now. <laughs> One of my college kids that came through here, they just had too cute a personality. I had to put them on the radio. And you wake up to that crazy personality in the morning, hello, and they would greet the whole audience. And from 6 o'clock on, you would hear so much personality. My dad had not read her license plate right on her little red convertible, you know, with the hood down. It said Rachie, but he called her Raunchy. And I go, Dad, it's Rachie. And, uh, yeah, and she was so fun. And, I mean, she could have a good time. Like, it was, it was fun. Yeah. Anyway, she said, you know what I've noticed about persecution? Well, she started really loving truth. Loving truth, like loving truth, like finding the joy of truth. She says, I realize that your persecution's in direct response or in direct correspondence to how much righteousness you have in you. Like how much you let your light shine. If you chameleon and act like everyone else, you won't have much persecution. But if you dare make a stand for anything right, they'll try to kill you. Amen? Do I have an amen from that section? Yeah. Because notice this in Matthew 5, 11. These are the Beatitudes. These are the blessings. Blessed are you. Blessed. Blessed. I mean, I have to read that by faith. Blessed are you when people start speaking evil of you for no reason. Blessed are you when they reproach you. Blessed are you when you, they persecute you. When they say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, that doesn't mean blessed are you when you do something that ticks them all off and they say all manner of evil against you. <laughs> but it says for my sake. John 15, 18 through 20, the world hates you. Y'all, this one, it's the, I'm not telling you that you're at this level yet, but I'm telling you it is a level. And as you come into a deeper walk with the Lord, I want you to say, Lord, I love you. Because the hardest thing I had, this I'm going to tell you deeply, the hardest thing that I face is having the willingness to be misunderstood. When someone misunderstands me, I want to chase them down and explain, well, they didn't tell you this, or this was slander, or that never happened. You know, it tells you in Psalm 38, 19, Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4, that people will hate you without cause. Don't be a part of that. And y'all, you can't explain it, except that it's Satan that hates you because you love God. You have to ask yourself the question, do you fear God or do you fear persecution more? Because part of it is you say, God, I'm not going to fear persecution. You know, someone once said, everybody fears being called a fanatic. Oh, they're just a fanatic. I mean, they have all these little names of, what is it that... Uh, Goody two-shoes and, you know, Bible thumper. And they have all these names. And you're just like, oh, I don't want to be called that because you know what a, a toot you are. Yeah, you're like, I'm a lot of fun. You know, they ought to come to my house when we have a party. We have a good time. You don't get why they hate you so bad. Like, what have you done to them? Someone wants to find this, you are a fanatic, this way. Uh, it's someone who loves Jesus more than you do. So... In this one of persecution, what starts dying in you is when you're willing to be persecuted because you love Jesus, 
people-pleasing dies in you. Have you ever been a people-pleaser? In the South, it's an art form. With control, we people-please. Soulish compassion, false sympathy is exchanged instead for something that has strength to it, like mercy and godly compassion. You have something that it really stands up as strength. Okay, now this one, I don't hardly know any churches that teach this one. But this area of lordship, number four, is the willingness to do conflict. Say an amen. Amen. Every church is so nice to you, so sweet, so encouraging, especially if you're their biggest tither. Or, or, if you're, or if you're leading their college group. That nobody wants to bring conflict with you, so they never correct you when you're wrong. Never. Never. Did you know in here, we've had the most unusual group of kids. They love to be corrected. Like if I let them go too long and don't correct them, they get real upset with me and think, oh, she doesn't love me. It's been six months. She hadn't hammered me for anything. Because they started loving truth. Loving truth will make you not afraid of conflict. Conflict is actually fun. Okay, now I'm going to give you the verse for it. This one's shocking. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? Telling the truth. So the Prince of Peace says in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, because it's red letter, he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. In Jesus' fun. Prince of Peace. I didn't come to bring peace. And then he goes, and I'm going to turn mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. We understand that one. And it goes down the list. Conflict. Okay, guys, let me, let me hit you all a little bit. Willingness to do conflict. Okay, gender conflict. No constraints. You know what I've noticed? Men a lot of times will not correct men. For instance, one of our college men had an addiction, and he almost lost his marriage over it. And they can't lose their marriage. They were just too cute together. But it was not going well because of the addiction. So it almost destroyed his family. So about six months into it, after everybody had worked with him and he had gone back and made apologies and, you know, he was a youth pastor and everything, I asked him, has any of the guys, the men, we had very strong men in the church, very good, strong men, older men with wisdom. Have any of them come and checked on you to see if you're still out of your addiction? No. I'm like, men don't correct men. It's kind of the fist bump. Y'all, as men, you've got to hold yourselves accountable. It's best for men with men. Amen. Okay, now watch this. Men are terrible in conflict with women. No, I just ruled men out completely right there, didn't I? They're terrible with controlling women. We did a whole message on men fall apart if they have a Jezebel in their church. (laughs) We've about decided that maybe Trump's the only person that ever stood against someone that was a controlling woman. Like, he just doesn't care. But men will not have conflict with women. Okay, worse than that, worse than having a controlling woman, men... Watch this. They won't disagree with a good woman. Whatever the little wife tells you. Honey, what should we do? (laughs) And it's funny. No conflict skills. This is number four level to sell out. I want you to let the Lord deal with you on conflict. And ask him. I was walking by the water fountain at our church and I asked my father who was pastor and I said uh, how did you get where you like conflict you do it so well he goes and the minute I asked the question the Lord said to me so loud he interrupted my conversation between my dad and he said I didn't ask you if you like conflict I just told you to do it and I knew oh dear this is the next lordship thing Like he spoke to me, this guy that was one of the elders at our church, that he started screaming God's name in vain at 3 a.m. And no one would confront him. And I was like, me? 
Like, you want me to say something about it? Because, I mean, literally, you're like, you've got to be, that's not the right order, God. I shouldn't have to. But conflict. And the Lord had spoke to me. And did you know what? I started getting conflict skills the way I get Bible studies. Like, before I go into conflict, the Lord will start speaking to me about what's in the person's heart. And it goes real well. But I had to say yes to God, standing by that water fountain. God, if that's really what you want out of me, I'll do conflict and I'll do it well. So you'll do those who are under your authority. Y'all, this one's shocking. So you do your children, Dr. Dobson, dare to discipline. (laughs) Surprisingly, you'll do a conflict with those in authority above you. Let me give you an example of that. Little boy Samuel with Eli. The first words little Samuel got was to rebuke Eli over not correcting his sons. And he was a kid. God's short on on workers because they won't do conflict. And churches don't do conflict. And we look like it. We have a lot of weeds. Conflict with friends. Conflict with children. Write down Luke 14, 26. Uh, Conflict with strangers. Conflict with family members. Conflict with rich people, powerful people. There's this celebrity that was led to Christ by the man who drove her, a chauffeur. And he led her to Christ, and it was powerful. It was all over the newspapers. But she wasn't disciplined, and she was on Oprah. She wasn't discipled. Nobody discipled her, and she was on Oprah. And after a while, she quit saying that she had made Jesus the Lord of her life or that she had been saved. And she started saying that it was all about just a better version of herself. And it became all about her and herself. Her life got wrecked by the enemy. And I was going to tell you, it's very sad because rich people tend to get the least correction in the church because no one wants to take a chance on losing their money. And it's not right. When celebrities get saved, everybody wants their photograph with them their autograph, but they don't take the time to disciple them. And the book of James says, you've got to treat everybody equal. You've got to just see what would make them better. I felt really bad for that celebrity, and I was praying for her because I thought, if you lead someone rich and famous and powerful to the Lord, you've got to be willing to do their discipleship, and you've got to have courage. You know, sometimes you've got to have conflict with what I call the feel sorry kind of people. I feel sorry for him. And you've got to have conflict because if you don't, you'll handicap a person if you feel sorry for him. And then look at this one, the person you love the most. Deuteronomy 13, 7. It says, if you have a person that you love more than anyone else in the world, it says, if you have this friend and it's your soul, you love them with your soul. And they should try to talk you into not serving God not doing the lordship thing. It says, you be the first to pick up the stone to kill him with. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. <laughs> because it makes it so poetic. The, the one whom your soul loves the most, you kill him. You throw the rock first. And we're not understoning in the New Testament, but the principle's there. You be the first to do the conflict with them. So, conflict with yourself. Pride correction some of us have to unspool ourselves in areas conflict with the unseen world and deliverance deliverance is conflict churches won't do deliverance they might do it with the crazy people <laughs> but deliverance is for normal people john 14:30 you've got to be able to say the ruler of this world has come and he has nothing in me you can't let the devil have a hold on you don't limit it to the crazies. you got to be able to do conflict with the Jezebels, the controlling person. There was a major ministry, and I went up and I talked to the leader, and he said, I don't do conflict. And I watched his, I'm going to call it dynasty fall. It didn't stand up. Principalities. So I would say that the church is weakest in conflict. If they ever do it, they do it very seldom. Most people say this, I'm going to avoid conflict at all cost. So this is where I've come to. I should do conflict right now with Kirsten. 
<laughs> I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> anyone else? The office is open. So, okay. But I've actually, let's talk about them for a second. Yeah, we can. Okay. Actually, I've gotten to the place I like conflict because it bears good fruit. And there's joy in conflict. I would have never believed it that I really like doing it now. It's a little uncomfortable going into it. But for the most part, I'm going to like how you turn out. And I'm going to like you growing from it and how you mature. So I actually like doing it now. It's taking God a while to get my emotions caught up. Okay. So number five, lordship. This one's terrible. I've tried to find a shortcut. I've tried to help you all on this one. I can't get around it. It's called die to yourself. But I'm just going through these scriptures and saying it's what has to happen. And John, I thought there were six verses on it, even though there's just one John 3:16. I think I found a seventh one. So your flesh has got to die. And you go, your self-will or arrogance or, or pride has to die. Die to self. But y'all, let me tell you what else has to die. Insecurity. I used to think, I'm just shy. I'm shy. But the truth is, I found that that shy was a part of pride. And just like my arrogant friends over here were way away from God, here's God in the middle. I'm on the other side, way away from God, because I'm insecure. So, die to self. I was going to say, some people die to self with dignity. Like in a movie, if you're the good guy in the movie, you need to die with respect, with dignity. Some people die horrible. They die in a movie screaming like a girl. I mean, they are like terrible. They have no courage when they die. Some people, when they die to self, the earth shakes underneath their feet. I mean, they scream so loud when they die. And when they go through it, my lance. <laughs> so, die to self. Everything you're holding back. Secret sins. The fact that Jesus will decide the kind of person you become. He'll decide your future. This was a shock to me on this diet of self. When I saw it in the Bible, I tried to get around it. Whoever loves his life, his sookie. It's not your physical life. It's talking about your soulish life. Whoever loves his soulish life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake will gain it. And I started realizing the opposite's true. If I lose it for his sake, I'll gain it. And you know what gain it means? It means you die to self and you don't stay dead. Not when you're serving the I am resurrection. When you're serving the living God, he doesn't leave you dead. You may be in the ground Friday and Saturday. But he'll pull you out. And so even the good stuff has to go through the death, burial, and resurrection. Even my gifts from God. Even the things I thought were good about myself. It'll go through that DBR. You know what that is? Y'all got it? DBR, say it. Very good. Good. The good stuff. And so I surrender the bad stuff, the secret stuff, the good stuff. And I surrender my ignorant areas. God, there's some things I'm just dumb on. Stupid. Pulling a piece of stupid. You've got to surrender the places you don't know about. If you lack joy, it will give you fulfillment. This dying to self will give you fulfillment because let me tell you what it gets rid of. You will never be afraid of dying again. You love not your life even to death. And once you come out of the resurrected grave because you've entered into Christ's death, when you're water baptized, you're buried into his death. You identify with his death. And you say, God, my future, my past, my present. It goes through that death, burial, and resurrection. And you're willing to do anything he said. So here's where it starts getting really into the joy of buried treasure. Number six is there will be lordship on specific and personal to your calling. Did you know God has an assignment for you that's different than everyone else? What I do is smuggle. I like doing underground work that no one knows about. 
I like to do stuff that you could go to jail for. <laughs> the wild, the crazy. What does your calling look like? He'll give you challenging assignments, and you got to be willing to do them. Write down Judges 10, 27. When Gideon was called, do you know what God told him? I want you to go take your father's idol that he has and tear it down. Well, that takes a lot of guts to go rip something out of your parents' home that they love. And he says, okay, I'll do it at night with 10 friends. <laughs> and that's where you start. I remember this thing happened to me not too long ago. I don't know if this will make sense. I'll try to make it make sense. I got a word from the Lord that it rose up in my spirit while Steph and I were praying together on the phone. And so the Lord gave me this word, and it was, um, it was a kind of like a, the first word to the word that he gave me. He didn't give me the whole word when we were praying, but he just gave me the first word. And it was such a funny-sounding word. Like, who believes it's a word from the Lord when it starts with the word hark? I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, my. So I told Steph, look, I'm embarrassed. I said, uh, I don't want to give this in front of anyone. So I said, I'm going to get off the phone with you, and I'll record it on my phone, and if it's really bad, I'll just erase it. And so as I was praying, because it came on me so strong that I had a word from the Lord, but I didn't know what it was going to say. But the Lord was speaking to me mostly in pictures, and then some words, most of the time I was just describing what I was seeing. And so my first picture was I saw Steph as an alpine climber on a mountain. It was cold, and she was throwing herself against the mountain, and it was almost killing her. I thought, well, that's, that's about as odd as you can imagine. So then the next one is I saw a piece of real estate, and it was this giant forest. It was this large, green forest. But what caught my attention was the look on her face. When I saw her see that the Lord had given her this new forest. It was a raw forest. And she had this look on her face of real satisfaction. And like she was getting something of, of value. And she had this look of pleasure. It was just the strangest look I had ever seen. It was just, but it was also a face of authority. And this forest was, you know, grown up, had a lot of trees, was real raw. So she came over and I thought, I'm going to erase this. This is terrible. Surely I missed the Lord. So she came over and she begged. She said, I want to hear that word. And I said, well, I'm somewhat embarrassed. I'm shy. <laughs> Not just because it's uh, the first word in it, because I just feel like that the word wasn't very specific and I have no idea what it means. I don't have an interpretation for what this means. But then I got to thinking, since the word's for her, sometimes a word for you will make sense to you when it won't make sense to the person giving it to you. Have you ever had that happen where it makes no sense to me? So anyway, she heard it, and she started explaining it to me. And then I was so happy because she was understanding it. And we got to the forest, and I thought, isn't this nice? God's going to give her something like it. They have ranch land, maybe the field next door to them. You know, God's about to get, but of course it doesn't have trees like these trees, pine trees. So I was like, I don't know. And all of a sudden she looked at me and she goes, you're the forest. Hallelujah. All of a sudden, raw fear hit me. And a look of delight hit me. Because I... I knew what would then take place. It's all those verses in the Bible that you don't like. You know the one that says the axe is laid at the root of the tree. <laughs> or the John 15 that says God is going to chop your branches off and burn them. You know, and, if, and, and you'll all go up and smoke. And even if, if you are connected to the vine, it says then it's still going to prune you. And I, I've never liked that verse. That's not one I put on my refrigerator because it looks like you're going to bleed no matter which one, good or bad. And I'm like, okay, so this is all about that. And I was thinking about the acts. And then I thought about what Steph does for pleasure on the weekends. She runs a chainsaw. And I realized that it wasn't going to be cut off nicely with an axe, chop, chop, chop. I heard, and about the time I heard it, she made that sound. Like, she made that sound of a, of a, <laughs> and you know how, 
when that happened, Angie Spice, she just had this terror. And she took off running. I'm like, you trapped me. She took off you running. me, God. Like, you trapped me. I gave a word that was dumb that didn't mean anything to me. And then suddenly I'm trapped. I, no. So she starts running. And I go, what are you doing? Where are you going? So I chase her. And she's, go, she's going out to Prayer Rock. She goes, I'm going to get saved again. <laughs> got to get my life back to the Lord again. We've been sitting on the porch swing. And when she made that... Thing, I cut off running against that hill. I get to where my dad would go pray. I fell on my knees, and I, all I could hear was that crazy sound of that chainsaw. And I thought, I have predicted my own death. <laughs> and I fall on my knees, and I say, God, I just give you my life all over again. And let me tell you, that's what sellout feels. It's fun, but it's crazy. It may be a little painful, but it's part of the fun. We cannot be afraid of that pain. And I was hearing, vroom, 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 vroom. And I was like, that's what she wants to do. She wants to cut me up and export me. That's why I told God, I will do Listen to this. Don't make a never list with God. Don't, don't let him know you have anything you don't want to do. Like I told God, look, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll do anything. I'll smuggle bibles. I'll go into foreign countries. I will squat in a hut in Africa. I don't care, Lord. I'll do anything. Just don't make me public speak. <laughs> and you know what the vroom is that camera. You have to have your nose looking down a camera. This is me telling God, this is the one thing I'll never do is public speak. And that's what God writes down on his never list. Don't tell him what your never is. It's the first thing that he'll put down. You know, specific. God will have specific things for your calling. They'll be unique. So number seven, sellout, is risk. It's a high level of trust. You're ramping it up. You'll work in the strength of your gift. We had a Muslim guy get saved, and he explained something to me about your gift. He says that when a bird flies and he looks at a branch to land on, the bird does not measure the strength of the branch and ask himself, will that branch hold me up? He said that the bird measures the strength of his wings. And I thought, you know, your gift is like those wings. Once it's gone through restraint, once God can trust you with it that you're not using it for self, you can sometimes do things that no one else can do because you've got the gift on your life. That bird has a gift, and it's wings. Not any other creature, not many other creatures have wings, but he can fly. Y'all, there's some areas that God has made you where you can fly, and you might can get away with a gift that maybe I've never experienced. That's what it says. What am I going to say? Do I not need you because you're the arms or you're the eyes we need each other because we have gifts and you're going to take risk of branches that can't hold your weight because you have a gift of God on your life you'll get into the realm of the unknown I've been writing on the areas of the unknown with God you'll get into the realm of getting beyond your own understanding when we're in Israel sometimes we go Let's not try to understand what we're going to do. Let's get into the realm that's beyond what we can understand. God, what can you do today that's crazy? Y'all, it's ramped up because you don't have a mother there to tell you no. You just get into the realm of risk. I remember the first time I was smuggling Bibles, and they said, can you carry these Bibles? We're not sure you can hold up to the weight. Running through dark alleys. Y'all, it felt like a thousand Christmases and carnivals all mixed up in one because I thought my mother would not be happy. I just said yes. <laughs> Y'all, you can rebel so far to God <laughs> that your parents will be on their knees every night of their life. The paradoxes, the free willing with God, the personal aspects that are intensely personal. These are things that you almost don't even dare to talk about. The divine ask. The being successful, I've had this happen to me in Matthew 25, 28. You get some things, some talents, some gifts in your life that other people aren't using. Like I used to not have this gift and then suddenly a gift will appear on my life that I, I used to could never do. That's because it says that 
the talents are pulled away from people not using them and given to the guy who's very successful. If you're successful, you're rewarded with more work. So in closing, you'll be in a personal deficit when you don't have God in all your compartments. Like you've got to supplement your intake. If, if your church and your mentors are not teaching you this, you've got to say, God, I'll go here with the Lordship. Because if you can figure out what is missing in your life, if you can figure out, okay, there's some sticks in the hay, they're not telling me, not everything can be edible that I'm hearing. That I'm going to have to pick it out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hard on myself. Because God, if I'm hard on myself, I keep my judgment strong then it says, then it gives God room to be more indulgent with me. He can treat me more like someone because he can trust me that I'm not going to get spoiled. You know, personally, what I've noticed about my college kids that since 92, I've been here doing Bible studies. We've had it on campus. We've had it all over the place that, you know, in different buildings. But I'm noticing going back and seeing these kids that if they have an area that they don't have under the Lordship, or even a part of an area that you don't have around the Lordship, like if you skip a few of these, that when I come see you, that there's stumbling points that cause you to stumble if you leave out a whole step. Or even if you leave out just one aspect, it leaves open doors to the enemy. If you miss some of those great areas with the Lord, some of those secret Lordship parts, what happens is when you miss them, you miss the joy. Because with the Lord is fullness of joy. And people that get saved and they look like they lost their last friend or they've been baptized in pickle juice or they haven't smiled since they got saved, they just do not understand the joy of selling out to the Lord. Amen.